Percy Bysshe Shelley, The Defense of Poetry. Shelley was descended from an established family. He was the son of a baronet, but he developed a radical reputation. He was expelled from Oxford for his tract, The Necessity of Atheism, which he sent to the professors at Oxford and all the bishops of the kingdom. Shelley was a friend of Lord Byron's and a disciple of William Godwin, with whose 16-year-old daughter Mary he eloped in 1814, despite the fact that Shelley was already married and had two children. His wife, Harriet, declined his invitation to live as the platonic sister of the menage. Percy's relationship with Mary was passionate, though he grew distant from her when she suffered bouts of depression over her five pregnancies in six years and the deaths of all but one of her children. But it was Mary, more than anyone else, who dedicated her life to creating his literary reputation after his death by drowning in 1822, and she edited and oversaw the publication of his work, at considerable risk to her own livelihood because Percy's father, Sir Timothy Shelley, didn't want his son's name in the public eye. We've already looked at his poem, Mont Blanc, when we discussed The Sublime and the Beautiful. Right now we are going to look at his essay, The Defense of Poetry, that was written in response to Thomas Love Peacock's The Four Ages of Poetry, published in 1820. Shelley's essay was completed in 1821, but not published until 1840 after Shelley's death. It is necessary to look at Shelley's essay as a response to Peacock's The Four Ages of Poetry, written by a friend of Percy and Mary Shelley. Because that essay is not very well known today, I'm going to begin with a summary of it. Peacock begins with a survey of four poetic ages from the ancient world and compares these to four ages of poetry in the modern world. In the ancient world, Peacock calls the Age of Iron the Age of the Rude Bards before written letters. The Age of Gold was the Age of Homer, where poetry became an art form. The Age of Silver was the age of poets such as Virgil, Aristophanes, Horace, and Juvenal, who wrote poetry of civilized life. The fourth of the ancient world's poetic ages was the age of brass, in which the poets rejected the polish and learning of the Silver Age. In contrasting these to the four ages of modern poetry, Peacock's emphasis is on degeneration. In other words, these later poets parallel the poets of the ancient world, but there has been a significant decline in the quality of the poetry. Peacock considers the modern age of iron to be represented by the songs of the troubadours and rhymes of the minstrels. For Peacock, modern poetry's golden age is represented by Ariosto and especially Shakespeare. Peacock places Milton between the Gold and Silver Age poets and considers Milton to be the greatest of the English poets with the energy and power of the Golden Age and the studied, elaborate magnificence of the Silver. In the Silver Age, Peacock places Dryden, Pope, Goldsmith, and Collins. 
And finally, Peacock's version of the modern poetic age of brass is the then current age, that is, his own time. Most of the poetry is focused on poetic impressions in nature. Peacock considers that particular age to be artificial and anti-poetical. There are some memorable passages in Peacock's essay. One of these is, quote, the egregious confraternity of rhymesters known by the name of the Lake Poets, end of quote. So clearly he's not a fan of Wordsworth and Coleridge. Peacock also states that a poet in our times is a semi-barbarian in a civilized community. He lives in the days that are past. So for Peacock in the age of brass, as he characterized his own time, poetry was no longer useful, but merely ornamental. He argues that because we already have more than enough poems from poetic times, we don't need more from these unpoetic times. So now let's look at Shelley's essay as a response to these arguments from Thomas Love Peacock. Much as Wordsworth does in his preface to the lyrical ballads, Shelley has a very high view of poets and poetry and espouses very big ideas. He sees poetry as an expression of the imagination, and in one section early in the essay, he discusses the beginnings of society and language itself. He writes, In the infancy of society, every author is necessarily a poet because language itself is poetry, and to be a poet is to apprehend the true and the beautiful, in a word, the good that exists in the relation subsisting first between existence and perception, and secondly, between perception and expression, end of quote. So the poet apprehends or perceives what Shelley calls the true and the beautiful, an idea that we will also explore when we look at one of Keats's odes. The poet is also able to apprehend, quote, the good which exists in the relation subsisting first between existence and perception, and secondly, between perception and expression, end of quote. This sounds quite similar to Coleridge's idea of the primary and secondary imagination from the Biographia Literaria, where Coleridge sees the primary imagination as consisting of the act of perception and the secondary imagination representing an echo of the former in which the poet creates. So for Shelley, poets are the founders of civil society, and they can also apprehend the true and the beautiful. He says, poets are the institutors of laws and the founders of civil society and the inventors of the arts of life and the teachers who draw into a certain propinquity with the beautiful and the true, that partial apprehension of the agencies of the invisible world, which is called religion. Hence, all original religions are allegorical. End of quote. In other words, poets are closer to the beautiful and the true, whereas religion is based on only a partial perception of the invisible world. In the same paragraph, Shelley goes on to say that, a poet essentially comprises and unites both these characters, 
For he not only beholds intensely the present as it is, and discovers those laws according to which present things ought to be ordered, but he beholds the future in the present, and his thoughts are the germs of the flower and the fruit of latest time. End of quote. In other words, here is the basis for his argument that poets are both prophets and legislators. They see the present both as it is and as it ought to be, the future in the present, much in the tradition of the prophets of the Hebrew Bible, where the prophets not only foretold the future, but would frequently make observations about the present state of society. Shelley also states that a poet participates in the eternal, the infinite, and the one that poetry produces pleasure, and that a poet is a nightingale who sits in darkness and sings to cheer its own solitude with sweet sounds. Poetry, for Shelley, awakens and enlarges the mind. He writes, Poetry lifts the veil from the hidden beauty of the world and makes familiar objects be as if they were not familiar. This idea of making familiar objects unfamiliar is reminiscent of Wordsworth's part of the lyrical ballads in which he sought to make common objects seem interesting and strange through the power of the imagination. Shelley sees the imagination as a great instrument of moral good and notes that these are not the poet's own concepts of right and wrong, which are those of his own place and time, but taps into a more universal moral good. Poetry thus makes immortal all that is best and most beautiful in the world. And in a direct refutation of Peacock's claim that they live in a most unpoetical age, Shelley argues, the cultivation of poetry is never more to be desired than at periods when, from an excess of the selfish and calculating principle, the accumulation of the materials of external life exceed the quantity of the power of assimilating them to the internal laws of human nature. The body has then become too unwieldy for that which animates it. End of quote. In other words, for Shelley, poetry is never more needed than when selfishness and the calculating principle, a reference to utilitarianism, and the emphasis on practical and scientific thought, lead to an accumulation of materials. For Shelley, poetry appeals to a symbolic and spiritual world, not a materialistic one. Poetry is indeed something divine. It is at once the center and circumference of knowledge. So, for Shelley, all knowledge comes from poetry, and poetry is not like reasoning because it comes from the imagination. In a very platonic idea, he writes that the best poetry is only a shadow of its original conception. And again, to refute Peacock's argument, Shelley says that his present age is not an age of decay, but rather an age of great achievement. And he closes with the most memorable statement of all. Poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. This might sound like a curious claim to our ears, familiar as they are with the political process of our own time, but remember that for Shelley, the concept of the legislator is one who can see the future in the present, what the world should be, 
which is kind of a legislative function and a function that Shelley admits is largely unacknowledged. As I said before, there are some obvious similarities between the poetic theories of Wordsworth and Shelley, the former in the preface to the lyrical ballads and the latter in the defense of poetry. Let's look at four important similarities. First, both poets have a strikingly high opinion of poetry and, by extension, poets. This probably sounds odd to our more jaded ears when poetry is not valued very much by contemporary culture. A National Endowment for the Arts study for 2002, entitled Reading at Risk, a Survey of Re Reading in America, reports that poetry was read by 12% of adults, or 25 million people. What would Wordsworth and Shelley think of this statistic? Second, both Wordsworth and Shelley speak of poets having an uncommon sensitivity that sets them apart from the common people. Wordsworth says a poet is, quote, endued with more lively sensibility, more enthusiasm and tenderness, has a greater knowledge of human nature, and a more comprehensive soul than are supposed to be common among mankind. A man pleased with his own passions and volitions and who rejoices more than other men in the spirit of life that is in him, delighting to contemplate similar volitions and passions as manifested in the goings-on of the universe, end quote. Shelley says that a poet, quote, is more delicately organized than other men and sensible to pain and pleasure, both his own and that of others, in a degree unknown to them, end quote. The third similarity, both poets make similar statements about the universality of poetry. Wordsworth says, quote, and thus the poet converses with general nature with affections akin to those which, though labor and length of time, the man of science has raised up in himself by conversing with those particular poets of nature which are the objects of his studies, end quote. Shelley says, quote, Poetry is indeed something divine. It is at once the center and circumference of knowledge. It is that which comprehends all science and that to which all science must be referred, end quote. Notice that both poets draw a distinction between the general and the particular. Poetry is general and universal, whereas science is particular. These are their words, not mine. And a fourth similarity between the two, both argue that the poet has a broader temporal perspective. Wordsworth says of the poet, as Shakespeare has said of man, that he looks before and after. Shelley states that the poet not only beholds intensely the present as it is, and discovers those laws according to which present things ought to be ordered, but he beholds the future in the present. 